0: Today we'll be in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, if you'll turn there. I've really been enjoying Colossians, such a blessing. As long as we live in the world and in bodies of flesh, there's this temptation to incorporate worldly ideas and philosophies and be influenced by things other than Christ and His Word And we can do this in a vain attempt to really enhance our faith or to to earn favor, thinking that certain things are really important, imperative to pleasing God, when God never said that. And we can put this weight upon ourselves to, uh, to feel like we are not complete in Christ, but through these things that we're doing and these beliefs that we hold. And in the church, we see that they were falling prey to legalism, and mysticism, and asceticism, and that's uh, the, the teaching that material things are bad, that it's, uh, it's worldly to have possessions, and, and that we need to afflict ourselves to really draw closer to God through prayer or fasting or through the denial of the flesh, we're somehow pleasing God by that act. Um, and people are led astray by the simplicity that's in Christ. I think when we're born again, there's this little self-righteous Pharisee in all of us that wakes up to spiritual things and begins to take notice of not just what we do, but what others are doing and what's right and wrong about them or their beliefs, and we begin to be judgmental. And uh, that's, that's a temptation for all of us, that we'll think that the way that I am convicted or the way that, that, that I believe should be the beliefs that other people hold to, and the convictions that I hold they should hold to the same degree. Uh, but we see that under the law of Moses, that people were commanded to teach their children the law, but Jesus has changed the way that we approach God, because it's no longer through priests and sacrifices and the keeping of the law, but through Christ alone. By the sacrifice once for all he made for us, that we come to him by grace through faith, the law was powerless to save us. It could only condemn. The children of Israel thought that by keeping the law, they would be righteous before God. But Paul reveals in the New Testament that that wasn't the purpose of the law. It was to show that we need a Savior. And like a tutor who is teaching a child while the king is away, it led us by the hand to Christ, our Savior, the only one who can save us, the only one in whom is salvation. Remember when John the Baptist came, heralding Christ, making the way plain to Jesus, directing people to Christ? Some of his disciples ended up being Jesus' disciples. Not all of them, though. Some of them continued to be John the Baptist's disciples, and that's kind of like how some of the Jews continued to persist in the law, thinking that by keeping the law, they were gaining favor in the sight of God. So, John the Baptist's disciples were right to leave the herald to follow the one he pointed them to. And so, in the same way, we're to follow Jesus. And he commands us things that are beyond what the law requires, but the law is good because God commanded it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your truth. I pray that uh, things these things that are just beyond us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and to apply to our lives faithfully. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and the righteousness that's through Christ in faith, that we can now approach you and come into your throne room of grace, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to the mercy that you've saved us. Through that washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, you filled us, you called us, and we pray that you would Uh, Fill us with your spirit now to understand and apply these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And happy Mother's Day to all here today. I forgot about that. Colossians 2, verse 13. It says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Being born again, we're raised to new life in Christ, the law that condemned us as sinners. It's nailed to the cross with Jesus. That handwriting that condemned us, it's been taken out of the way. Through the gospel, we approach God now a totally different way than laws and ordinances because Jesus has fulfilled the law. The law remains good, but Jesus has brought in a new covenant in his blood, his blood that was shed on Calvary. And our righteousness is given us by grace through faith. Romans 4, it says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. We aren't required to follow the letter of the law written on stone, Because we have fellowship with Jesus himself, the one who wrote that law. We're with him now. We don't have to offer sacrifices daily by a priest at the temple. Not that we could do that anyway. For Jesus offered himself once for all to make us the temple of the Holy Spirit. So now the Holy Spirit lives within us and we have fellowship with God that we never had before. Very few of us, I imagine, were brought up as Orthodox Jews under the law. But it's possible because of our backgrounds and because we're people that we bring some humanistic or traditional views and they begin to uh, color the way that we read Scripture. We can bring some baggage to our walk with Christ. And as we read the Bible and we're influenced by other believers and teachings, we can become increasingly judgmental. Uh, and have these personal convictions and begin, we can be imposed upon and we can also impose upon others things that we think, well, but this is really important. Um, And even in the New Testament, we can create a new law that we think this is really important, um, which we'll get into. Children thrive on routine. Those mothers out there uh, who have had kids and dads too, you know how kids grow accustomed to certain things. They, they grow accustomed to the schedule, the routine, eating a particular food, familiar foods, um, the after-school routine of maybe having a snack or watching a show or having an activity. The oh, oh, I hear that. All right. We'll just keep going. All right. The involved, now who can, who can uh, identify with this? The involved bedtime ritual. Every part of this ritual must be kept to the T before you can really go to bed. You have to clean your teeth and in a certain way. Floss, you have to have the PJs and the bath and the, the book and the, the animal, the stuffed toy and, and the particular blanket. And like everything just needs to be so. And I tried to keep those bedtime routines as simple as possible. Like, we don't need all these props to go to bed, just go to sleep. Um, and if, if you're like, it's getting late and you're reading the child's book that they're, they can recite to you, but yet they want you to read it to them. You're reading it to them and to save time, you skip a few pages. Well, they will know. Hey, you, and they'll reach out and they'll want to go back. Like, hey, go back to those pages you missed. That was important. You you, you haven't read the story right, and we can be very much like this when it comes to our expectations of other Christians, and we think how they should be, and the things they should do, and the things that are important, and we can point out how much they're missing out by not doing something, or by doing something, how that's a problem, because our convictions, of course, are just and right for all, right? I mean we've come to this conclusion. How could they possibly come to another one? Verse 16, of course we don't say that, but that is there, just in the background. Verse 16, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. If you watch the Australian Open coverage, you know that there's umpires everywhere. There's umpires at the ends and they decide whether the ball is in or out. And when a player disagrees with the call, he he or she has so many challenges a set. And there's this computerized system called Hawkeye that involves six or seven different high-speed cameras that use computer uh, software to determine the trajectory and the speed of the ball and where it would land. Though impartial, Hawkeye isn't perfect. 3.6 millimeters of give and take, which is pretty good for a fuzzy ball, right? And because it's an impartial judge, whatever Hawkeye says, that stands, whether you agree with it or not. Because of what Jesus accomplished on Calvary, nailing the law to the cross, wiping out all the ordinances that were against us and condemning us. We're not to allow other people to be the umpire in our lives to dictate what is in and what is out. Now, I think we would all very much like to have a Hawkeye in our lives. We would love to say, well, is this sin or not? So that we could just have a definitive answer, not just so we would know, but so we can tell others. We can tell us, well, that's definitely out. That's out now. But this is in, and this is okay. Isn't it funny that we often ask, well, what is a sin? Is this a sin? Rather than, is it loving and glorifying Jesus? Usually, when we're worried about something or concerned about it, it's never framed in the positive. Like, is this glorifying God? You can't play a game without judgment. And you can't live life without having to make decisions that you've thought through. So judging in itself is not bad, but when you're judgmental, which means that you're negatively looking at others and criticizing them, then that becomes a problem. Our part is to remain steadfast and obedient, obeying and trusting Jesus, not looking for the approval of people, uh, living by the fear of man. I want to point out that Paul does not say this. He does not say let none of you judge one another in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. Now, we might mistakenly quote it that way, or you might apply it to your life in that way. You may, it's always good to take, take the word of God personal. Have you ever prefaced something by saying, now, don't take this personally, but. Like, I'm not wanting to offend you, but hear what I'm saying. Whenever you read the Bible, you ought to take it personally. Like, it, it's God speaking to you. It's not for someone else, it's for you. But notice the person that he is really aiming at here, he's taking aim at people who allow themselves to be influenced by others to go back under the law, to begin to uh, add these legalistic or traditional views to their lives. Let no one judge you concerning the legalistic requirements of the law. So he's saying don't let other people be your umpire. When it comes to this, don't be beguiled by persuasive words to turn aside from salvation that's in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, don't be persuaded by those who are judging. When Jesus has told you something, when they go, oh, that's in, it's okay to do that. But if Jesus has said, no, it's not, then guess what? It's not because Jesus is the one that you're following. If a judge in court declares me guilty, that judge under law has the authority to carry out the sentence that's imposed upon me. I can be sentenced to prison because they have that authority. Since we're complete in Jesus and he's the one that guides us into truth by the Holy Spirit and the word of God, it's not the law of Moses that's convicting me now. It's Christ. He may use the law to point out a problem in my life because the law is still good. But it's not, we're not made righteous through keeping these ordinances. Dietary law, feasts, the rules concerning Sabbaths observed by the Jews, it was kind of like a faded Polaroid, a bit of an image of what was yet to come in Jesus. It was a shadow, the prophets and the priests, they were a shadow of whom Christ is the substance. Guzik wrote this, The shadow has passed, the reality has come. So for the Christian, all foods are pure and all days belong to God. There's been many people who have pointed out the the practical, they've looked at the dietary law, for instance, and said, well, this is really practical. A lot of the foods that God forbade his people to eat, they're fairly unsafe foods at times. They need proper handling. But the law was not right just because it's sensible, because it makes sense to me. That's not why it's righteous, but because God commanded it. That's it. It's because God, a righteous God, said, this is how my people are to be. That's the basis of obedience. There's nothing inherently wrong with eating pork or shellfish octopus. The Passover isn't more a holy day than Halloween is an evil day. Every day is a fitting day to praise and worship God. It's fine to have traditional celebrations. It's good to meet on the first day of the week, uh, as we do, because Jesus rose on Sunday, and we see that in the early church. But God's not more pleased with us than he is with those who celebrate the Sabbath from Friday sundown um, to Saturday dusk. Every day is good to be worshiping God. To say one day is more acceptable to God is to put yourself under a requirement of law which condemns. Please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Word of God is so amazing because He uses it powerfully to speak to us individually. And what's pretty cool is when I share these things, I have no idea what God is going to actually say to you through them. <laughs> and and so I, I I don't have to take shots. And in fact, I try to not take shots. So if you think I'm taking a shot at you, please understand that I'm not. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer." These doctrines of demons, these lies, they're pretty surprising. If if you said, what's a lie, like a a blasphemous, heretical lie, I wouldn't have thought, well, lies are bad, of course, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Those are the examples he uses the food that you're eating, that that in some way would make you more acceptable to God. That's demonic. That's blasphemous. As followers of Christ, our food is not sanctified by a kosher certification on a label, but by God's word and prayer. Some people would say we should be or should consider being vegetarians on moral grounds, well, that's not anything found in Scripture. Though Daniel decided in Babylon that he would only eat vegetables, God gave meat to the priests and the Levites and their families to eat. So it doesn't hold water. Because we're free from the law, someone can choose to eat ethically sourced grains and vegetables as their primary diet, and others can eat meat with every meal without guilt before man or God, because God has given that to us to, uh, to eat. And we shouldn't mock those who decline a beer or they, they're not interested in meat, and, and vegetarians shouldn't judge a, a meat eater as a murderer because God's given us these things to eat, sanctified by Him. Remember, the law is no longer our governess because we're walking with Jesus. He's the one who's guiding us. It, the food we eat cannot condemn us, nor is it profitable to condemn other believers according to the law. If you take one part of the law as required for salvation, then you're required to take the whole law, the entire law, and you are obligated to to follow it. Self-imposed religion, powerless to save. It will only condemn. Back to Colossians 2 verse 18. "...let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly push, puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God." God rewards those whom obe- who obey him, and we ought to desire that full reward that he gives. 2 John 1, 8, 9, it says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. The doctrine of Christ, following Christ for salvation, is through Him and obedience to Him we have a full reward. It was false humility which caused people to worship angels. They said, well, God is so holy. God is so righteous and we're sinful. So we need need these mediators, these angelic beings to plead on our behalf so that we can find favor in God's sight and have an audience with him. But that's not scriptural. That was uh, fleshly ignorance and arrogance to say that what God has said, the way that we come to him is not sufficient. As an aside, there are some who put a great deal of emphasis on angelic support or comfort or help. We don't see Jesus praying to them. It's fitting to ask God for his protection, and he can use angels. We know that they are his ministering spirits sent to those who, uh, who believe in him. That's a verse that we're going to come to later. I'm skipping ahead. I mean, why, why credit a so-called guardian angel with a miraculous deliverance when it's God who employed that angel to do that? If we could even know that there was an angel involved. Because we'll commonly hear, oh man, the angels must have protected you. Well, wasn't it God? Even if he used an angel, God did it. So let's give God all the glory, and we don't need to pray for an angel to save us. Jesus will save us. He's able to do it himself. There's no specific instances here how those in Colossus worship angels, but I found a good example when looking into uh, angels how this false doctrine can persist today, or a way that it shows itself. The writer of Hebrews, he was talking about the supremacy of Christ over all created things. Like, of whom did the angel say, you know, you are my son, today I've begotten you. He never said that to an angel. He was saying that Jesus is God, not like a created being. He writes of the angel's role in Hebrews 1.14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? To say I know when God sends out angels or how exactly they minister or are involved in my life is to intrude upon things I cannot see. Now, we can read in Scripture of how angels have been involved in people's lives, how they have been His messengers, how um, all throughout Scripture, there's different ways that, that, that angels were employed. But to take it at face value, there are angels, spirits sent forth by God, to minister for those who will inherit salvation. That's what the scripture says. I read this encyclopedia article, and this is what it said concerning this verse. It pointed out this verse, and it said this is what it means. This is the function of the guardian angels. They are to lead us, if we wish it, to the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Angels are leading me to the kingdom of God? No. They do not. Jesus is the one we follow. He's the one who's brought the kingdom of God to us. It's profane to suggest that we need a guardian angel to guide me to heaven. That's not what the angels were sent to do. Jesus is the one we follow, not an angel, not a man, not a mere man. Jesus alone has the words of life. We're complete in Christ, and anyone who says our standing with God depends upon what we eat or what we drink or where we worship uh, or how we need the aid of angels to protect and save, he says, is vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished in it together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. I believe you would all agree that the head is the most important part of the body. You can lose a limb or several limbs and live. You can have a lung and even heart transplant. But without a head, the body's not going to live. And in the head we have is where all the hearing and the seeing, the smelling, the speaking and eating, that's all attached, Um, the thinking. The identity, that's all in the head. They don't have like foot recognition software, it's facial recognition. And we, Christ is our head, and we are connected to Him. The head of the body, we're all individual parts, so instead of seeking a message from the stars or a guru or an angel, we're to go to Christ, He's the head. He's the one who knows everything. And he's the one who, just like a head, is sending all those messages through the nerves of sense and movement. So Christ is the one who teaches us how we ought to move in our sphere, in our role in the body of Christ. And we are to follow his lead. Connection to God doesn't come through spiritual experiences or the use of narcotics to heighten your senses, to deny yourself a particular food for a particular time, just arbitrarily, but to be connected to God through Christ alone, through faith in Him. Colossians 2 verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul asks probing question to those who impose regulations upon themselves in attempt to find favor with God. He says, If you died with Christ to this world and you're born again, why are you subjecting yourself to the commandments of men? Having died to the world, why do you let worldly things rule you? The Pharisees questioned Jesus. They said, Hey, we notice your disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. Why don't they wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders? It wasn't that their hands were totally filthy. Now, maybe they were filthy. I don't know. But they weren't washing them in the prescribed way that the elders said you should. And so they said, they're eating with unwashed hands. Why do you let them get away with that, Jesus, if you're a good rabbi? And Jesus asked them a question. He says, why do you also transgress God's commands by your tradition? You're the ones who have clean hands, washed according to the tradition of the elders, but your hearts are filthy before God. And Jesus, knowing the hearts, he could see it, and he knew it. God gave the Jews his laws, and they added them to them their traditions. We are liable to do the same thing. A great example is with Adam and Eve. Remember, God gave the command... Out of the tree of the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of that tree. Or in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He gave him that warning. Notice what Eve said when questioned by the serpent in Genesis 3, 2, and 3. She said, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. God had just said, don't eat of that tree. But you see the sensibility of man's argument, his own little tradition. Well, if eating it's bad, if I don't touch it, that adds some extra safety. But she said that God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, when God had never said, you shall not touch it. He just said, don't eat it. But we want to put some extra safety into it. Well, if I don't touch it, I won't be eating it. So I don't touch that thing. I don't touch it, so I won't eat it, but what have we done? We have added to what God has said. The extra rules and precautions, did it stop her from eating it? No! She could have had a 10-step you know, uh, process to stop from eating that thing, but she ate it anyway. It's not regulations we're to submit to, but God who commands us. Jesus didn't teach that we're to deny ourselves of food or things, but to deny ourselves and follow him. That is like so important. We realize that. If God directs us to fast from food for a time, we know that he will sustain us. If he asks us to give or or tithe to a church as a gift, he will see our needs met. In the book of Acts, we see people selling all of their stuff and putting it at the disciples' feet. And that was not in the law. That's because the Holy Spirit directed them to do that, and they chose to obey, and the reward is from him. It didn't make them more righteous or more worthy of apostleship or being a disciple. They did that because they were disciples, and they were obeying the Spirit's leading. The commands and teachings of men can have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. So this asceticism, that severe self-discipline to avoid indulgence of the flesh, it caught fire. It was in the ancient world and it also took hold in the church, which ironically indulges the flesh by deprivation and denial. So in not having the thing, you're actually indulging your flesh in kind of a reverse way. It puts the flesh back in control and we become obsessed with the thing that we're denying ourselves. It arises from guilt, not thankfulness. It's a form of self-punishment, kind of like you buy non-flavored greek style yogurt today because you overindulged in ice cream yesterday oh i was bad i was really bad so i'm just gonna kind of punish myself today like i'm only gonna eat that yogurt teach myself a lesson we do this we we don't even necessarily think it through But this self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body are no value against indulgence of the flesh. Does denying your sweet tooth mean that you're seeking God instead? No. Not at all. They're not connected. Uh, Fasting from food for a week will not keep you from fornicating for five minutes. It has no power to stop you. No matter how much you deny and deny and That's not where your self-control comes from. It comes from Christ who, who is directing you. Let's turn to Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1, just for some application. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, "Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak only eats vegetables. Let him not let him who eats dis, excuse me. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant?" To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. It may be hard to imagine, but all of us have an amount of hang-ups, things that cause us some emotional or mental difficulty, things we wrestle with. And it may be something that someone else doesn't wrestle with. It's kind of just They've made a decision, and there's no rest, the wrestling is over for them. But for you, it's still a bit of a wrestle. Still not quite sure. And not every decision we have to make in life is explicitly spoken, like whether you should buy uh, caged eggs or only eggs that are free range, okay. and to make a moral judgment on that. Paul uses an example of those who ate meat and those who were vegetarians. People who had grown up, now remember, people had grown up under the law eating only particular foods. And now they were having fellowship with Gentiles who were eating uh, not just pork, but dog and rat and a lot of other items that they would have never imagined eating. They just scream unclean. Like, why would you want to eat a rat anyway? It's a fair question. I'm sure if prepared right, it could be great. Paul's saying the diet choices you make aren't to be a point of contention. That's not to divide you and to cause you to judge a brother or sister based upon what they choose to eat or what they refuse to eat. When you sit down to eat food, there will be a series of judgments you make. We do this every day. If it's a leftover, you probably give it the old visual and sniff test. If it, if it fails either of those, it's gone. Like, no. Green stuff on that shouldn't be there, white uh, mold, no. I'm not going to eat that. If it smells bad, no. Some of you may power through that. I don't think badly of you because of it, but boy. But you think, how does it look? How does it smell? Is that a bug? Is that a worm? You just need to discern what it is. And after you taste the food, you get to decide if you're going to keep eating the food or very casually place that unswallowed mouthful into a serviette and hide it somewhere, just to be polite. So judging is not bad in itself. God judges righteously. Our problem is when we judge self-righteously based on our superior opinions, and we look down on others as ignorant or as less spiritual or weak in the faith, because they don't agree with us in belief or practice. Paul said, Christian meat eaters shouldn't hate on the vegetarian. The vegetarian shouldn't judge the meat eaters as being wrong. God receives people regardless of diet. He loves them all, he will save them all. And he follows up with, who are you to judge another man's servant? So for each of us, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ and he is our judge. He's the one who causes us to stand. He's the one who causes me to stand when I was once dead in sins, so he can help that other brother and sister stand as well. Verse 5, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. There's nothing wrong with esteeming one day above another, like Mother's Day or Christmas or Easter, or a birthday. There's nothing sinful about letting a, 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 let's say, a national holiday pass without any special celebration or notice. We ought to be convinced in our own minds. Some people hold convictions about um, what they'll say, a pagan connection to a holiday or a practice. So they won't hang a wreath or a Christmas tree. But there's other people in celebrating Christ and remembering Him have no problem with putting up a Christmas tree because that's a tradition that they have within their family. Not based upon pagan things, but something that the family does. Uh, So those who won't decorate a Christmas tree... And whenever they see it, they, oh, it, it irritates them, or they see Santa, they just get angry. Um, they shouldn't see someone who uh, ascribes to that or has those traditions, sends a Christmas card that has Santa on it, say, "Oh, those pagans, those irreverent, ignorant people." And the same thing with people who are burning a Yule log and wearing paper hats and sipping brandy shouldn't think of the others as being, you know, legalistic and stuck up. Oh, you know, they're so legalistic. No, it's not about that. One person can sit down to a ham dinner and give God thanks for that ham, and somebody can sit down to vegetables and say, thank God I don't have to eat ham today. I am so glad I do not have to eat meat because, you know, the Passover meal, it involved eating meat. You had to eat meat. Some people don't like meat. That's okay. So someone could sit down and say, I give God thanks because I'm eating this today. It's a special traditional meal. And someone else could sit down to something that's not traditional and say, thank the Lord I get to eat this. Or I'm, he's put on my heart to fast on Christmas day and I'm happy to do so for him because he gave up the glory of heaven to come to me. Instead of judging others, we ought to do everything heartily or even abstaining heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men, because we're obedient to him. We seek our approval from him. I encourage you all to read chapter 14 of Romans. It's got lots of great stuff that we just don't have time to get into. But knowing that Jesus... Our hope and salvation is in Him alone. It keeps us from being weighed down by the burdens of self-imposed religion. Our freedom in Christ is not to um, seek after, uh, I guess, fleshly and carnal appetites, sinful desires. The freedom God gives us isn't to be used to that end, to pursue the flesh, but to glorify God. There's limits and boundaries that God does put on our lives, and we need these. But they're going to be different for every person. We must be convinced in our own mind and check our motives, because there, there are things that all of us, they make great on us that someone else doesn't even think about. Twice in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote this. He said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful And this is a good thing to think about is the things that are legal, there's a lot of legal things you can do, um, even according to the law or Australian law, that are not helpful for you in following Jesus or leading people to him. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6.12, he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And in another place, in 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So for me, these are very helpful parameters in my life to say, is it helpful? Is it bringing me under its power? And is it edifying me and the body? And if it, if it fails on those points, then I can know that those convictions I might be sensing is from the Lord. Being a slave to eating or drinking, it's not good because those are not God. We need to follow Him. During our earthly pilgrimage, this is going to be, uh, it'll be, I guess, a bit of a, it's a challenge because it's not always the same. God has us in different seasons and times and we begin to learn, well, you know, that thing that's permitted by law, that's something that I should not do. Or this thing that goes beyond even what the law says, this is what I should be doing because we serve Christ. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The laws regarding food and drink and Sabbath days, they were a shadow. Jesus is the substance, the head. He is the one that we're connected to now. If Jesus leads us to keep a law, we obey him. If he he leads us to go beyond what the law says, we do that too because he supplies the strength. He is the head of the body, the one alone who connects us to God through faith. One thing I love is that when Jesus, his disciples were doing the wrong thing according to the law or the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. And whenever they saw that, they would always come to Jesus and Uh, daub them in. But every time Jesus stood up for them, and he had their backs, and as we serve Jesus, as we follow him, he'll protect you. He will provide guidance for you. He won't leave you alone. He is our righteous, righteousness who will cause us to stand and will someday present us faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. And I'll talk about food and drink. That'll all be over. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your truth, that you're the one that we obey and follow. And thank you that you've put us in a body with such diversity, and yet we have the scriptures that, that uh, lead us in truth through the Spirit's guidance. Thank you, Lord, that when we seek you, we can know what's right and wrong for us, and that we can help others too as they wrestle And and work through some of these decisions that must be made, and I pray, Lord, you would bring us to a place where we are convinced in our own mind that we are at rest, knowing that it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. And I pray that that would not make us um, slack in our obedience to you when you when you say something very clearly that we ought to be doing or not to be doing. Thank you, Lord, that you are God, that we worship you, that you are our head, and that you will present us faultless before your presence with exceeding joy. May we walk in that joy today, Lord. Thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.